If you have your Bibles, you could turn with me this morning to Acts 3. And as Pastor Jeff mentioned, some of you might be panicking. We're going to attempt to work our way from chapter 3-1 to towards the end of chapter 4-31 today. And today's message is a singular biblical historical accounting with three stages or three parts with many more takeaways than is possible to note all in one sermon today. In my office, I have Martin Lloyd-Jones' six-volume set on the book of Acts. And from 3.1 to 4.31, I think he has 17 messages just in this section. But today, the goal is to go section by section. I'm going to read a section, discuss it. We're going to connect the overarching theme or the main point today, which is this. We must learn to rest in God's sovereign plan for the church of Jesus Christ that he left. He left the church this mandate. This mandate to make disciples or worshipers is still the mission, the message, and the method for the church today. So today we're going to talk about the church's mission. We see it here in Acts all throughout. The book of Acts is called the Acts of Apostles, but it's really the Acts of God through the church. We're going to talk about the message of the church, and we're going to talk about the methodology that we see here at play. So many, many books have been written on the mission of the church, the methods used in building his church. There's no shortage of those books. And the message that is to be used by the church in its preaching. But many of those books fail to utilize passages like this. Church health experts, by and large, forsake these passages and and these truths in here and instead run headlong into pragmatism, manipulation, uh, market-driven techniques, leaving the church starving for its missional mandate given to us by Christ himself in Matthew 28, 16 through 20. The mandate is to go into all the world preaching the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all my commands. Jesus' last request is to be the church's first concern. Is that your concern and my concern? Folks, that is the book of Acts. That is to be the New Testament church. This kingdom building, building, disciple-making process is, is rooted in also the power of God, the words of truth, and through the power of the Spirit. So many people are not concerned about this missional mandate that's been around for 2,000 years. Instead, they're more concerned about the mass mandate. They're more concerned about their political freedoms rather than sharing the freedoms found in Christ. The call to come and die to ourselves, to worship God through repenting and believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is, by and large, again, not our primary concern. So instead, we have traded out these methods and this mission and this purpose for the church used by Peter and John and the apostles. And again, we run headlong to pragmatism, programming, human pride, manipulation techniques, and give ourselves over to program uh, of, of businesses rather than the program given by God, by Christ, through the power of the Spirit, through the power of the Word of God. And so may we learn today, to bring ourselves back full circle to understanding the call to obey Christ and to to issue the call to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, to bring the conscience of the lost to conviction through bold confrontation of sin. Oh, that's fun. Through the preaching of the word of God by the power of the Spirit. Let me tell you something, it is fun. It's a joy to do that. And that's what we're going to see here in Acts 3 through 4 today. So I'm going to read Acts 3, 1 through 10 in a moment. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on our journey through this passage together. Father, I ask this morning that we would give ourselves wholly to this time, to receiving the words of of Luke, 
as he gives an accounting of, of the early church as it was born and called into its mission. And I pray, Father, that our hearts would resonate with what we see here and that you would give us this joyful desire to go forth and do the same as we saw this early church do. Father, your plan has not changed. Your methods have not changed. Your message has not changed. The power of the gospel is still just as ready to go forth today as it did in these pages. I pray that you would breathe your life into us to go forth into this mission, to to call forth sinners, to bring uh, glory to you through repenting and believing in your Son, Jesus Christ. Give us grace as we walk through this passage. Give us ears to hear hearts to receive, and lives to be uh, called to mission. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. So Acts 3, 1 through 10 says this. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate at the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. The first point today is this, as we read this passage. The lost often don't know what they're missing. The lost just don't know what they're missing. So they ask for far too little, with no thought to their spiritual conditions. And so we're going to trace the story and bring out some of these points. In verse 1, Peter and John were going up to pray around 3 o'clock. This is the ninth hour. It's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon for a time of prayer. This time of prayer is the most important matter that Peter and John saw as a very good thing and partook of in the temple. Again, we have a time of prayer here at 9 o'clock. I encourage you to be here. Uh, This was a good thing that they were doing. Uh, Peter and John, uh, you had just read what happened in Acts chapter 2. Remember what happened in Acts chapter 2? Thousands were added to the church through the preaching of the word. Peter could have thought, or the old Peter could have thought, you know, I'm pretty good at this preaching thing. I really don't need to go pray. I really don't need the power of God. But no, he's going up at 3 o'clock to do something so simple, to pray. To pray. This they learned from Jesus himself, who was God, and yet was going out early in the morning to go pray to his Father. Do not forsake understanding the power of prayer. Don't forsake yourself from prayer. So Peter and John are going up to pray. They came by this lame man in verse 2. Being lame in this day and age was a virtual uh, vow to poverty, uh, not only to the disabled, but this was also a great burden on the family as well. In verse 3, we notice uh, here that his cry was a desperate cry for just basic survival. So he couldn't go work. Uh, They they didn't have government care back then. So they were relying on the generosity of God's people. He's outside the temple here. And he's crying for alms. This is a cry for daily bread. He was hoping to receive just enough alms to be able to go get some bread for that day. Before we look down on him for that, isn't that in the Lord's Prayer? Shouldn't that be our cry too? There's nothing wrong with crying for your daily bread. We're taught in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. So we cannot be too hard on this beggar asking for something so simple. This is a valid cry and it obviously stops Peter and John in their tracks. The plight of this man, his cry had caught their attention. They listened to this poor beggar's cry. And they learned this from the loving heart of their master, our Lord Jesus Christ. The situation is tragic. It is urgent. His cry is simply for a bit of money to just make it through another 
day. How many of you feel like that sometimes? God, help me to just make it through another day. Does the Lord care about that cry? Yet how often we get so caught up in just the moment of the here and now of just trying to struggle through the day. In verses 4 through 6, they were going to the temple to pray, which as mentioned again was important. But I want you to notice something here. They weren't so focused on this important discipline of prayer, their task. They weren't so focused on that that they turned a deaf ear to the plight of this beggar. They could have justified in their heads that praying was far more important than stopping and talking to this beggar. They could have excused this in their head, but they didn't. They stop, and it says here, this is important to note, they fix their gaze on him and tell him to do the same. Everything else seemingly, everyone else seemingly was ignoring his cry, but Peter and John Notice this, they they were not ashamed of him. Locking eyes with the beggar would have been seen as shameful. The beggar didn't want to look up because there was probably shame there. But they lock eyes. They meet one another. So the beggar now expects to receive something that he had asked for. He's so focused on his daily subsistence. And in verse 6, Peter delivers some seemingly bad news to him. Silver and gold I don't have for you probably not what he wanted to hear. Okay, then what's the point of this, right? He doesn't leave him hanging. Here's the bad news. Silver and gold, I have none. The good news is this. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Do you think this beggar was upset about not receiving silver and gold after he got up? I don't think so. He probably forgot about that. The name of Christ had healed him, had had changed him. And in this passage, the response indicates that he didn't give it a second thought after being healed. Yet how many people come to Jesus to receive their daily bread, and that's all the further they go. They want to come to Jesus to get their best life now. No thought of heaven. No thought of the true presence of God. They want to come to Jesus to get something, not to get Jesus. What did he receive? He received Christ. And so this beggar is healed. He begins, notice what he does, his response. He begins to praise God. He went from being a sinful beggar to being a worshiper. Folks, this is our calling. Before we met Christ, this was us. We were poor beggars just trying to make it through this life. We meet Jesus Christ and we receive Life. But how many of us get upset when God says to us, silver and gold I have none for you, not realizing that he has so much more waiting for us around the corner, waiting for us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And as Peter's about to demonstrate, it's a radically changed life. It's a miracle of a new heart. C.S. Lewis writes this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at a sea. We are far too easily pleased, and far too often we ask for so little. Everything we need is in the name of Jesus Christ. So may God help us to be like this beggar, overfilled with joy because we receive something far greater, and we have that. That is our inheritance in Christ. Notice with me again this beggar's response. I want you to note where the beggar goes upon being healed, how he responded, and who he goes with. In 7 through 9, he walks and leaps with Peter and John. Notice where? Into the temple. When people are saved, they're to be baptized and added to the church. It's not just pray this prayer, make a decision, and then just go continue living as you were before. What is his new identity now? He's a worshiper of God. That's what we're called to do. This is what happened here. 
Notice the spiritual significance. He goes into the temple, into the gathering, the place of God's people. He's now worshiping, he's praising God. It says here, he did not cease to worship and praise God. He wouldn't stop. That's going to play out later here in chapter 4 as well. He's giving God all honor and glory. And he remains with Peter and John throughout this whole ordeal that we're going to unpack today. He went from being a beggar to a healed worshiper. We also note here that many others witnessed this ordeal. And they were amazed by this. So we're going to read 3.11 through 26. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together with them into the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we made him to walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health and the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. It shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed for the people. And all the prophets who had spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And so we see here that 3, 1 through 10 set the stage for the foundation for Peter to preach a powerful second sermon. So Peter, right away after the miracle, now questions their man-centered focus. He questions their man-centered focus. Far too often we magnify the sign and forsake understanding the symbolism. God gives outward displays as examples of what he wants to do inwardly. Right? Some may ask, then why the miracle? Why the miracle? That's a valid question. Let's think about this. Has God given us outward physical signs to understand his spiritual inner workings? Doesn't he do that all throughout his ministry? Doesn't he? He, give us, he gives us these symbols. He gives us, he fed the 5,000, right, with the bread and the fish. Later on, we're going to see there's some significance there as 5,000 more are added to the church. Okay? He gives us lots of symbolisms. Marriage is given to us to understand what? The husband and the wife is a picture ultimately of Christ and the, the church. Right? So we, we can understand that. What about the ordinances, right? We have baptism and the Lord's table. That baptism, can you feel that? It's kind of cold. Some of you really felt it this year. It was kind of cold coming up out of the water. Do you feel that? You understand the significance as you process that outwardly. But it's a picture of the heart being washed by the blood of Christ. It's also a picture of new birth, of going from death, burial, resurrection, of being in Christ through that. We also have the Lord's table. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. We can taste it. You can smell it. You understand the crushing significance. You understand the unity of that loaf as he's gathering the grains from, many, from the many fields into one loaf. That that's a picture of God gathering his people into the church to be the body of Christ. You understand that cup, right? And you taste it. You experience that. 
God gives us outward displays to understand the inner workings of the spiritual life. And so notice that he rebukes them here for marveling at the miracle and also attributing that power to them instead of to who? Instead of to God. So he directs their attention away from several things. He directs it away from the beggar, from the miracle, and from themselves. Do you remember when they were arguing about who was the greatest just maybe a year before? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? So you have Peter here, you have John here, and they're, they're arguing about who's the greatest as, as Jesus just goes and washes their feet. Has Peter been humbled greatly by this point? I would say so. Peter doesn't want that attention. Peter and John draw the attention away from themselves and they point it to the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, to the God of Jacob. He calls them to look upward. This is worship. Behold God. Behold the power of God. He teaches them about who Christ is. He points out the character of Jesus Christ. He calls him holy and righteous. We need him because we're not. He gives them Jesus. He gives them the truth of the gospel. And folks, this is the mission of the church, and this is to be the method of the church as well. The the mission of the church is to show glory to God, to point to the work of Jesus Christ, to share with people the need to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ. That is the mission of the church, and the mission is to glorify God. It's like John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That has not changed. This is to be our means. This is to be our methods for spreading the gospel. Notice with me what Peter and John do not do. Dear brothers and sisters, listen to this carefully as I lovingly bring this out. Peter and John do not give their testimony here. Is the power of the gospel in your testimony or is it in the preaching of the word? He doesn't share his testimony. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. He does not share his testimony. He shares scripture. The power of life change is in the written word of God weighing heavily upon the conscience of sinners who need to become saints through the person and the work of Jesus Christ alone. He does not share his testimony. He shares God's words. And what words? What's he quoting from here? He's quoting from the Old Testament. He applies it to their heart. He calls out their sin. He chooses the foolishness of preaching to advance the gospel and to arrest men's hearts, to make them become beggar, from beggars to worshipers of God through Christ alone. In verses 14 and 15, we see further uh, the gospel methods. We then see that he calls out their sin. He preaches to the conscience. Many might say, you know, that's not nice. Maybe you're uncomfortable telling people you're a sinner. How else are they going to get saved? They don't realize that they're sinners that need to repent. Many will say that's not nice or they won't like us or we don't want to hurt their feelings. And yes, it will hurt their feelings. But in Acts 2, remember, Peter preached so that they are pierced in their hearts. They're pierced to the heart. This isn't friendship evangelism here, is it? He's not sharing his testimony. He's not being soft. He's being a man with a backbone that's shaped by the gospel, empowered by the Holy Spirit. He's preaching the word. He's preaching conviction. So they know that they fall short of a holy and righteous Christ, holy and righteous God, They must know that they're in danger of eternal judgment before a holy God. Verse 16, he doesn't leave them there. He gives them the remedy. It is by faith. It is by faith alone that this man was healed. He's teaching them that it is by faith alone that they can can experience this time of refreshing. In 17 and 18, he gives them the scripture again. And in 19 through 26, he calls them to repent. And that the times of refreshings are here for them as promised. 
They are the children of Abraham that were promised to him. Those numberless stars, the sands of the sea, they're finally being gathered in here. So if we stop here today, if we were to stop here, we're tempted to think, wow, that's, this is good. This is awesome. What a nice story with an easy ending for Peter and John, but we haven't gotten to chapter 4 yet. We learn that there is going to be a cost for this mission following these methods. But do you know why we trade out this mission and these methods for something easy? Because the response to this sometimes is hard. People don't want the true fruit of doing ministry this way. In chapter 4, we learn a most important lesson in regards to the Great Commission mandate. There are and always will be at least two general responses when you preach this biblically normative way. You give people your testimony, what's the response normally? Oh, that's nice for you. But I like the way I am. You preach this way, you're going to get one of two results. Chapter 4, 1 through 22. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the highly priest, high priestly family. When they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and all to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, ouch, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you as well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus, but seeing the man who was healed standing before them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they, conf they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them as evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them back and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So the first way that people might respond is that people will hear the word, repent and believe, and become worshipers, believing in Jesus Christ alone for salvation to be made right with God. We see here that the total number of believers who heard the word and believed was raised to around 5,000 people. Acts 4.4, 4, we see that. So it wasn't about the miracle that they saw, but the word preached that caused them to repent and believe. And note that. Did the miracle get them to believe, or did the preaching of the word get them to believe here? It's the preaching of the word. Let's read that again just to, just to bring this out. But many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to 5,000. So it was through the scripture that these people were brought to life. I think that is very, very important. The second way that people are going to respond is with 
these are, these are some other words that could be used here. Disdain. Frustration. Being disturbed, bothered, or vexed. They were highly irritated, in other words, by the preaching. Why? Because there's power in the preaching of God's word. We see that they interrupted them, seized them, and threw them in jail. They wanted to shut them up. Notice they didn't shut him up for sharing a nice testimony. That's not what rubs people the wrong way. You call out people's sin through the power of the word of God, are they going to like that sometimes? Obviously not. It got Jesus nailed to a cross. They hated him. And he says, if they hate me, they're going to hate you too. We should expect this. They hated Christ. And we, hear, we see here that they are just following through with that promise that they're going to be hated. They're upsetting the self-righteous through the power of the Holy Spirit, through his word. Biblical preaching will upset people who will not bow the knee to the king of kings. If you preach to the conscience of sinners, it's going to prick and there's going to be backlash. They very well may hate you too. It might get you thrown in jail. They will try to stop you from speaking the words of life. They might put you on trial. They might question you. In other words, preaching God's word throughout thousands and thousands of years as taught by Jesus Christ is going to get you in a lot of trouble. Let's look further at how Luke describes Peter in verse 8. We see that he was not resting in his own power or strength. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And when questioned by the ruler's scribes and priests, he also answered respectfully to them. He was not rude. He was not arrogant. He was respectful. He was respectful after being thrown into prison for preaching the words of Christ. And yet there are people today who are disrespectful because they got to put a piece of cloth on their face or they're upset about vaccines. He's obeying the Great Commission. It got him in trouble. He's called into trial. And he's respectful, but honest. We need to learn from that. Peter shared the gospel. He called these religious and political leaders out. In verses 8 through 12, he gives them scripture. He calls out their sin in verse 12. He shares the way to Christ. He gives them the gospel as well. He did not respond in cowardice. What a change in Peter's life. Remember again when Christ was arrested and Peter denied Christ three times because he was afraid of a little girl. Do you remember that? A little girl asks him a question about being associated with Christ and he vehemently denies Jesus to the point of very strong language. Now he's preaching a powerful sermon. He's arrested. He's being questioned. And by the power of the Spirit, he boldly, yet kindly, and with strength, rebukes them and preaches to them and gives these religious and political elites the gospel. May God give us this boldness and strength. We see the religious leaders' response to the gospel call to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, whom they crucified in verse 14, where they had tried to silence Peter Notice what happened to them. They're now silenced. God has a sense of irony, doesn't he? They're trying to silence Peter and they have nothing to say. They have no words. Where Peter had once been a coward and is now bold, these religious, politically powerful men cowardly send them away to talk and to confer behind their backs. In verse 17, we see that they were worried about what the people would think and demanded that they be silent. They didn't know what to do because the people were worshiping and praising God. The pinnacle of this section should be our heart as well. In verses 19 and 20, the reply of Peter and John is that they cannot help but speak. They can't help but speak. Is that our heart? Is your heart, is your love for God and your love for Christ, your life through the power of the Holy Spirit so rich and full that you cannot help but speak the truth to the lost? 
because you love them too. Are your eyes, when they're lifted to the multitudes, filled with compassion or frustration? Which is it? They could not help but speak and notice about which they had seen and heard. This is biblical and this is historical fact. The resurrection of their king. Some of you today may be saying, well, we, we want to... We you know, speak about things, but we haven't seen Christ or heard him, and maybe you're struggling with your faith because you've never seen Jesus. I want to read something that I found in, in Burkhauer's Dogmatics about the kingdom of Christ. He says, The kingdom of Christ found and consists in righteousness and joy in the Holy Spirit. And when Peter says to the believers... And this is scripture. When Peter says to the believers, whom having not seen ye love, on whom though now you see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice greatly with joy unspeakable and full of glory. There is a longing for the future, as John writes, we shall see him as he is. 1 John 3, 2. But those who have not seen and yet have believed are also pronounced blessed. John twenty twenty nine. Peter understood that. Peter walked with Jesus, knew him personally, but he says, you are blessed. You haven't seen him. You never met him physically, but you know him. That Christ that we worship together, that Christ that that Peter walked with and knew and denied and yet is now preaching is the same Jesus that you know just as much. And you are blessed And if you know him, here's what will happen. You will learn the art of being filled with the Spirit like Peter, preaching the truth, seeing people saved, baptized, and added to the church. We have the same mission. The message has not changed. The methods have not changed. This word of God is powerful. It is active. It is quick. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. And yet so many people, when they go out to preach the gospel, they want to share their testimony and they put their sword down. And there's no conviction, is there? The power is in the word of God. You know Christ and you are blessed and we cannot help but speak of him. What Peter and John are saying here is, we will not stop. And they were threatening, threatening them even more. Did they relent at all? No. They trusted God with this response here. They believed in the sovereignty of God. They were interested in God's mandate to preach the gospel And it was more important to them than anything. So let me ask you this today, brothers and sisters. Does the gospel of Jesus Christ mean more to you than your comfort? Careful how you answer these questions. The day may come when you've got to stand by them. Is the gospel more important than your comfort? Is Jesus' request to go into all the world preaching the gospel your first concern because you love him who died for you and gave himself for you? Here's another question. Are you doing it now? Can you not help but preach the truth of the gospel to sinners? Are your eyes fixed upon beggars who needs so much more than just the day in and day out? Are you giving the message of the gospel now? Let me ask you this. What about your children? That's your first call to evangelism. You bringing them to church, even when they're, they don't want to go? How many of you have been there? I know how Sunday morning goes. I have kids. It's hard, isn't it? You're, you know, you're frustrated, you can't find your shoes, your son can't find his socks that you laid out for him the night before because you're spiritual and trying to get ready for the next morning. You're ready to go worship. By the time you leave the house, you're frustrated, disheveled, not in the right frame of mind. But are you teaching them the value of gathering in God's house? And also during the week, are you practicing Deuteronomy 6? 
when you rise up, when you go to bed, when you go about your way, you're giving them the glorious gospel truth that they may love Christ, not perfectly, but in grace. You're sharing the gospel with your children or your grandchildren, with your friends, your neighbors. What about your coworkers, employees, other students? My father-in-law, Amber's dad, taught at White Lake High School for around 40 years, coached football, baseball, basketball. Many of his students know the Lord. Some of them are preachers of the gospel now. He took opportunity to leverage his location to point to the glory of God. Some of them did not. He leaves the results to God. Did that get him in some trouble with the school board sometimes? You betcha. But he has a spine. And he loves the Lord. My father, through his connections at Wayne State University, still works with those students and is seeing them come to know Jesus Christ. And it's costing them their family, some of them. They're counting the cost. He's using his retirement to point people to Christ. He loves the Lord. He can't help but speak. What about you? Where has God put you? Do you need to travel to 400 churches, raise $400,000 just to get overseas to be a missionary? Is that missions? The mission of the church, missions, is this. Leveraging the gospel right where you're at to behold the Lamb of God. Now, that's a part of it. We do need to spread the gospel into all the world. I'm not minimizing that. That is very important. It's amazing what God does through those specially called to go be foreign missionaries. It's amazing. <laughs> I don't know how they do it. It's taxing. That's, that's a cost. But I'm talking about the rest of us right here. This is the mission of the church. We cannot help but speak the truth to those around us, no matter where we're put. For Peter, it was in the temple, and then he's before the Sanhedrin being called into court. He does it in both places, doesn't he? Preaches the gospel wherever he's at. You and I can do the same. Leverage your jobs, Leverage every relationship that you have to point them to the love of Christ and to the fact that they're sinners in need of a Savior. Very quickly into the last section here. In the last, last section, 23 through 31, and I wish I had a lot more time to spend on this because this is such a beautiful section of the scriptures. Beautiful picture of the gathered church together. And I want us to note the response in 23 through 31. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, then they quote scripture, Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The king of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus." And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So we see here 
that Peter and John go back to the people and they rejoice. The people rejoice with Peter and John. And they pray for boldness for all of them to go do the same things that they just did. They went back and gathered with the saints to report what had happened. They remained unified. And when it says they reported, it means they simply shared the facts about what had just happened in both situations. They didn't whine. They didn't complain and try to figure out how to overthrow those tyrants. They set themselves to greater task, to God's mission, to God's methods. Their faith was not shaken. The place was shaken. They were not afraid. They rejoiced. In 25 through 27, they prayed prayer together in unison, lifting up their voices together. They prayed scripturally filled prayers in unison. They quoted Psalm 2 together. This is rooted in God's sovereignty over rulers. We must trust that. Who ordains rulers? God does for his glory and for our good. You're like, that's a hard stretch. But it's true. They petition for protection. They petition for boldness. To speak his word with confidence. And therein lies the power. It's the word of God again. If you take one thing away today, it's this. God's power is in his holy word. It's in his spirit. And they prayed in the name and the power of Jesus Christ. And notice this, the holy one. Verse 31, we see that God answered their prayer. Not to run away. Not to whine and complain about the rulers. They ran to God. Glorified him. They were filled with, and they proclaimed the word of God, and it says boldly. So where Peter and John did it, what happened? They went back and they taught them all to do it together. That is what we are calling to today. Pine Grove Community Church ought to be a place where we are all boldly proclaiming the word of God and asking God to gift us with that same power and that same boldness, to be filled with scripture, to be filled with power of the spirit, to speak the word of God with boldness. They did not ask God to spare them from suffering, conflict, possessions. Excuse me. Excuse me. um, He did not ask them to spare them from pain or from confrontation. Quite the opposite. They prayed for more of what had just happened. They valued their gospel. They valued Jesus Christ more than their comfort, more than their possessions, more than ease of life. The gospel is more important than their life. So let me ask you this. Would you truly pray Psalm 2 and ask God to fill you with boldness, to be filled with the scripture, to go preach and teach the truth in such a way that it might tick people off? Don't go looking for that. But understand that might be a result. That might be a result. Brothers and sisters, many in our spheres of influence hate Christ. They love their sin, and they will hate you if you call out their sin and issue forth a call to repent. Have you counted the cost of carrying your cross? This is it. Followers of Jesus, guess what they do? Followers of Jesus lead people to Jesus through the preaching of the word of God. We will see beggars become worshipers. We will see self-righteous control freaks come to know Christ. Or they may hate you. Much more can be said here, but I'll close with this. If you are not doing this today, pray for boldness. Maybe you're not doing it because you haven't prayed for boldness. What did did Peter and John teach them to do when he went back and reported? He taught them to pray the word of God and ask for that boldness. Peter knew where that power came from. It was not from within, it's from without. God gives it to you. If you're not sharing the gospel today, simply do this, brothers and sisters. Ask God to give you the boldness and the strength and the joy. They rejoiced in this, didn't they? And he's worth it because he's holy and he is the author of salvation and he owns you. You belong to him. And he has given us a mission. He's given us a message. He's given us the methods. Let us not trade it out. Let us not poison it, water it down. Utilize fully what he has set forth for us. 
just want to read to you really quickly in closing. Charles Spurgeon says this. Any Christian has a right to disseminate the gospel who has the ability to do so. And more, he not only has the right, but it is his duty so to do as long as he lives. Revelation 22.7, it is our duty. The propagation or the spread of the gospel is left not to a few. It's not to the bald guy with the suit up front, although it is me too. But to all the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the measure of grace entrusted to him by the Holy Spirit, each man is bound to minister in his day and generation, both to the church and among unbelievers. Indeed, this question goes beyond men and even includes the whole of the other sex, whether believers are male or female, they are all bound when enabled by divine grace to exert themselves to the utmost to extend the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a treasure and a gift that is that we get to be ambassadors of the King of Kings. What a privilege. Let us not forsake Christ's last request. May it be our first concern to build redemptive relationships, to see beggars healed, to become worshipers, and to follow Christ with us. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing. Father, we thank you for your word. It is powerful. It is active. It cuts to our heart. I pray, Father, that we would respond today in faith. May you fill us with boldness to preach the gospel, to speak truth into people's lives through the word of God, entrusting you with the results no matter what happens, and help us to stay the course. May we, like Peter and John, say we cannot help but preach Jesus Christ, whom we know. I pray, Father, that you would embolden us, help us to not be filled with self, but to be filled with Christ, to come and die and understand that the gospel is more important than any relationship. It's more important than our lives. I pray that you would teach us to leverage wherever we're at to build redemptive relationships, to call sinners to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. May you add to your word today through action. May we see fruit from this scripture as taught. And we rest in your results. We thank you that it will not return void, but we will accomplish that which it was sent out to do. And we trust in that. In Jesus' name we give thanks. Amen.